Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This Slate Political Gab Fest Extra is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring but not sure where to find the best candidates? As a business owner, your company is only as good as the people you hire. And posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. But when you're short-staffed, there's no time to deal with the dozens of different job sites. Until now. Thanks to ZipRecruiter.com, you can post to 100-plus job sites with one single click. Just post once, and within 24 hours, watch your candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. Be instantly matched to candidates from more than 4 million resumes. ZipRecruiter has been used by over 400,000 businesses, and you can try it right now for free. Getting the right people for your company is so important. Try ZipRecruiter and get your perfect candidate before they go to somebody else. Today, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. Again, ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to a GabFest Extra for September 25th, 2015. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am here in the Slate DC studio with Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent. Hello, Jamel. Hello, David. John Dickerson is trapped in the Face of the Nation studio where he is preparing probably for his John Boehner interview, his big John Boehner interview, which will be coming up. And joining us by phone from somewhere is Emily Bassalon. Hello, Emily. Hey. So it's Friday morning and we taped the GabFest yesterday. And then what does John Boehner do? He goes and announces or he tells Republican officials that he is going to step down in October as Speaker of the House. So Jamel, he apparently made this decision after seeing the Pope. The Pope, the papal visit, sealed the deal for him. But what's the sort of basic reason that Boehner is giving it up? Well, I don't think we have any exact reason why he's giving it up. But I think the thing everyone is pointing to, it's just the fact that he is struggling to prevent a shutdown over defunding Planned Parenthood. This is the sort of what, second or third consecutive time this sort of thing has happened. House conservatives despise him, think he's sort of spineless and gutless and not defending their interests. And I think he's just tired of it. He just doesn't want to do it anymore, which is an entirely fair uh, conclusion to come to. His stepping down in the in the short term, his stepping down, the theory seems to be that there will now be a clean funding bill passed, at least for the short term. I don't really understand why his stepping down causes a clean funding bill to get passed, because Democrats will vote for it. Right with some Republicans. Well, he's, I think the theory is that because he's no longer worried about protecting his position as Speaker of the House, then he kind of, it doesn't really matter what conservatives do. He can get a clean funding bill through with Democrats and moderate Republicans, and he can just leave. Emily, there's some great metaphors for Boehner. 
great descriptions of him. I mean, obviously, people talk about his teariness, his orangeness, but I loved the one that went around today of him as the giving tree, um, which is that he's... <laughs> Who's letting himself be he's, um, yeah, cut that he's, into pieces He's allowed himself to be away. cut into pieces, and all that remains of him is this stump. Why does that metaphor resonate? What is it that has happened to him, at least, at least according to his supporters, that makes him like that? I think if you're not one of his arch-conservative critics, you feel like... This guy basically was one of them, but he chose to play an establishment role in which threatening to shut down the government is irresponsible and counterproductive. And he wanted to be a grown up. And he has gotten slammed for that every step of the way by the more rebellious members of his party. And it seems kind of crazy that he has to take the fall so that they can decide to keep the government open. I don't exactly get it. And then the other thing is there's something poignant about this timing. I mean, we were discussing the Pope's visit on Thursday and thinking, huh, will this really have any effect on policy? And I think we started talking about Boehner and John Dickerson said, you know, yeah, maybe I'll ask him about this when I interview him this weekend, because it seemed like if anyone was emotionally affected, it was Boehner who was weeping. And I just wonder if there was something about that cathartic emotional moment that made him think there's just something wrong here and I don't want to stand for it anymore. Early reports say yes. Early reports say that the visit clarified and and maybe had him move, make this decision faster than he might have. I mean, who can blame him? What is it like to be the person who gets carved into pieces by the people who you essentially agree with or you agree with about substance, if not about tactics? It must just be incredibly galling and frustrating. Jamel, the last few speakers, except for Pelosi, who just kind of lost, but many of the last House speakers have ended their tenure in in disgrace. Newt Gingrich did. uh, Mark Foley did. Jim Wright did. Bob Livingston, who briefly flirted with being speaker, did. Denny Hastert didn't end in disgrace, although he's since been disgraced. <laughs> what What is it about this job that is so unappealing? I think that for Republicans in particular, I mean, broadly, the job is just kind of thankless. It's a it's a very powerful and important position in government, but it's not very high visibility. It's mostly sort of coalition wrangling and trying to keep your caucus together to actually pursue something constructive. I think for Republicans in particular, there is this wide and growing divide between what I just call sort of lawmaker lawmakers, people who are there to actually do things, and then people who are there really to make some sort of ideological statement. And those people have no real regard for, you know, congressional traditions or norms or even sort of just the function and structure of things. And so if you are the leader of those people, it just becomes almost an impossible game. It's hard to sort of balance those two things because they always stand as a potential threat to your your power. And Democrats don't seem to have that problem as speaker. Just they don't they don't seem to have that kind of ideological sort of minority pressing against them. But the weird thing about that is that's only a problem if you assume that the way to be speaker is that you only pass bills using your That's right. party. If Boehner said, you know what, I'm going to do a speakership where I'm going to be in the middle and I'm going to pass bills where I'm going to get 140 Republicans and 
a hundred Democrats and we're going to get bills that way. That would be a perfectly legit. That would be a great way to go. But he refused. But to how do that. could you ever get elected speaker that. and keep the job if you were doing well, appara- it that that's way? In our right. partisan that's what, world, that, right? That's, that's what like happened. A fantasy. Right? No, that's right. what happened. Is that that he has enough of his caucus who are saying we're going to have a force of no confidence vote about you, so you cannot remain speaker. I, mean, I didn't really understand how a no confidence vote. No confidence vote wouldn't literally strip him of the speakership, would it? If if he didn't get a majority of votes and a no confidence, no, it wouldn't vote. strip him of the speakership. It would just be a sign. Let's say you know, of the I don't even know the numbers off the top of my head, but if if some if a quarter of the Republican caucus voted against him, that's like a sure sign that um, he's probably not going to win re-election as speaker. So it sort of it kind of makes him a lame duck. But what I don't that's what I don't understand is if he could make a case to Democrats, this is what no one will do. But if he could make a case to Democrats that I'll be a, a speaker who who is in between. I mean, this is a fantasy world. But it's a fantasy yeah, world I where you say I'll be in between. I don't understand what you're talking about. It's I, not our system. Speak, we don't no, have the speaker, that system. The speaker, we have two parties. No, the, speaker, the speaker is the Republican no, speaker. Well, no, no, no. The speaker, speaker is elected no, by the whole Congress. No, but that's how it works. Fine. Come on. But then, Emily, but Emily some, once you accept that as a premise, once you accept that as a premise, then you say it is the majority of the majority that makes all the decisions. Right. I mean, so... so. I think right. You, you, That's you, you been both, the case for years. That was the Hastert rule. This goes back. Yeah, it's a both, terrible it has rule. to do with it's ideological division and right, partisan right. reality. It's reflecting the reality of the political map, not some like strange choice John Boehner made to do this job this way. Institutionally, David makes a correct observation, but practically Emily, Emily is right that House is governed by what's called political scientists called party cartels. Basically, it's majority of the majority, not necessarily majority of the full body. And that's in part because or largely because the distance between, say, the most conservative Democrat and the most liberal Republican is still astoundingly huge. Maybe, you know, maybe there are procedural questions and procedural issues on which you could sort of craft majorities from Democrats and Republicans. But as soon as anything has any ideological substance, there's no way to maintain that coalition. Although weirdly, Jamel, in this case, it's being governed by the minority of the majority. Baynard certainly has the support of the majority of House Republicans. It's just that there is a significant enough minority of House Republicans who express dismay or discontent with him. I don't see how... And that is arguably the Republicans' weakness, right? right? I mean, this is where the fact that the Democrats don't have a strong, a kind of super liberal or whatever you want to call it, faction, is a strength for them because it's easier for them to unite around one leader, or at least it was when Pelosi was in the house. Or I'll say it's not that Democrats don't have... A strong sort of liberal minority, they they do. It's that even that strong liberal minority is constrained by interest group politics in the same in a way that Republican conservative minority just isn't. That like ultimately, someone like uh, Keith Ellison has concrete things he wants to get right. done. Right, mm-hmm. um, but right. Steve right. Scalise does or not. does not exactly. Does not. He's come there to destroy the institution. He's come there to, right. to undermine the, the idea of lawmaking and legislating. Exactly right. If you have ten percent or twenty percent of Congress that doesn't want to do the job, doesn't fundamentally believe in its interest, then that's problematic. Given and given, actually was elected not to go along with the people who want exactly. to go to right. the job, do the job. Right. I mean, that's why the that was the appeal to the voters. Given all that, Jamel. How can there be a speaker who could do a better job than Boehner? It's the, the early tip sheet says Kevin McCarthy, who's the House Majority Leader, 
Literally never. I had never seen that guy until you. <laughs> I did not know. I looked at. He I, was one I, of I the saw young him guns. behind the Pope, and I was like, "Who is that guy behind the Pope?" And then I. I bet Jamel knew who he was. I knew who he was. He just didn't. Okay, but anyway, yeah. so Kevin Phew. McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy. This kind of seemingly uh, like not terribly uh, interesting or bright California Republican is the person being tipped to be the next speaker. Is there any reason to think that Kevin McCarthy has some sort of magic that allows him to do what Boehner couldn't? Not at all. I mean, he's more conservative than Boehner. He's the conservative members of the House like him more. That's part of why he was tapped to be House Majority Leader after Eric Cantor lost. Uh, was that last year? I think if if McCarthy decides to try to go down the path Boehner did and act as, as an institutional actor and rather than a Republican one, he'll end up at least with the same frustrations. He'll, he'll get Boehner, right? I think the most likely outcome is that McCarthy, who more so than Boehner, who's a been in Congress less long than Boehner, and so more so than Boehner, it does doesn't seem as tied to the House as an institution. Might just go along with the conservatives, and might might end up leading them on this these um, pointless fights, and that will keep him a speaker longer. But it will be very unhelpful for the process of governing. Well, game that out. So as, as, imagine that instead of Boehner, there's a speaker who, who in fact is willing to go to the mats, is willing to sort of push for defunded Planned Parenthood, is willing to shut down the government. Doesn't it ultimately always end the same way, which is that, you know, Boehner always had to fold. Aren't these guys always going to have to fold, at least as long as there's a Democratic president, because they don't have enough to override any vetoes and they can't leave the government shut down forever? Isn't that going to be the case or not necessarily? I mean, <laughs> certainly if you're going to be extremely irresponsible, it doesn't have to be the case. But assuming Kevin McCarthy doesn't want to go down in history as the single worst speaker, you know, since the 1850s. I think it ends up he ends up in the same place. He has to fold. Um, and the thing about Boehner's strategy is that by announcing essentially that you have to fold earlier, I think it actually made the backlash less bad than it was. But if you're going to lead conservatives on to think that they're going to win and then at the last moment fold, I can't expect McCarthy will stay much popular with conservatives much longer. Is there any um, safe path for McCarthy or whoever gets this job where you – can you ever get away with, I did the best I could, I tried really hard to lead the charge and sustain it, I just have to fold at the last minute? Or is that just always going to be seen as craven and disastrous? I think that if McCarthy were backed up by Repo- like other institutional Republicans in the Senate and sort of outside Congress and other Republican Party actors, that could work. You know, you could have the Heritage Foundation, you could have Ted Cruz and everyone saying, well, this is the best thing we, this is the best possible Can you imagine Ted for. Cruz right. ever saying that? That's, That's not that, going to happen. This is the problem, right? That like, <laughs> that McCarthy will be saying one thing, just as Boehner has been saying one thing, and you'll have Jim DeMint and Ted Cruz and sort of the entire uh, right wing infrastructure saying, well, you just sold us out. The right. only one who person who's able to do this in any fashion in recent years was Newt Gingrich, who for a few years was able to, with a Democratic president, able to drive the agenda. He didn't get everything he wanted by any means, but there was the perception for several years in the 90s while Jamel was in preschool that, <laughs> that, that in fact – Republicans were totally driving the agenda and making the decisions. And, and Clinton, it was always Clinton sort of triangulating, playing defense. And so even though Gingrich, I don't think Gingrich won a higher percentage of those fights 
than Boehner did, Gingrich definitely was seen as the prime mover. But there's nobody in the House now who's seen as a prime mover. There's nobody who is the who is a kind of leading figure who represents a specific set of, you know, there was the contract for America that Gingrich had, but there's no specific set of, like, here are the five specific things that we are going to demand and push for, which you could have. You could imagine a House leadership which said, these are the five bills that matter most to us. We're going to push them. We're going to force the president to veto this stuff, force the Senate but to But isn't the difference it. between that 90s Congress and this Congress the nihilistic nature of what these right-wing Republicans seem to want? They want to repeal Obamacare. They want to defund Planned Parenthood. They're not putting forth... Right. I guess they least, do have right? an agenda, right? They do have an like agenda. It's just like it makes no sense. Yeah. Right. It's You're right. That's a good point. Emily, just one closing question, or Jamel, you can take this too. Do we think that Boehner's departure will have measurable impact on the presidential race? I think it will in the sense that the person who got to announce that to a room full of conservative activists was Marco Rubio, who is currently under the radar but trying to make himself the least objectionable figure to every major faction of the Republican Party. And it's noteworthy that Rubio got huge cheers for announcing this at the Values Voters Conference this morning. And I think that this is the kind of thing that will boost his, just the fact that this is something he can announce it, he can say this is a good thing, or in an oblique way say this is a good thing, um, helps him build a stature with, I think, the part of the Republican establishment with which he has the least influence. But take a longer view on this, Emily. Going back to your point of a minute ago, Jamel, is that whoever the next speaker is, if the next speaker has to be more confrontational and has to push for these sorts of showdowns, who is that likely to benefit in the presidential campaign? Is it likely to benefit the party in general in the presidential campaign, or is it going to be damaging if the House adopts a more confrontational posture? I mean, this is the essential tension for the Republicans. In the short term, or maybe even the medium term, and among hardcore Republican voters, this benefits someone like Rubio and gives him one more reason to be the nominee instead of someone like Jeb Bush, right? Someone more palatable to the harder right. But then can that person get elected? And does the country ever get to a point where the, the willingness, the eagerness of really hardcore right-wing Republicans to sacrifice the people in their party who act more responsible just becomes too much. And the reason it's so hard for the country to get that place with the House has to do with re- redistricting, right? I mean, this part of the House comes from incredibly safe Republican districts. And so it's very hard to see that dynamic changing. But I feel like the sacrifice of Boehner is like the beating that John Roberts took at the last Republican debate, where suddenly, you know, the Supreme Court Chief Justice, who has, in fact, you know, provided the fifth vote to save Obamacare twice, which was a very good thing for the Republican Party, right? Quietly, everyone breathes a sigh of relief over that. Also true about the gay marriage decision, not that Roberts actually voted for that. But he has led the court down a path that is very good for mainstream Republicans. And yet he is the person who Ted Cruz is the most eager to pillage. That's a great point. John Boehner, we'll miss him. He's one of the few few House um, people I ever interviewed back when I was covering politics. I really liked interviewing him. He was very... Why? You know, he was very fun. He was very, he was very straight and sort of... I mean, I'm sure he was bullshitting me in some fashion. But it felt, it felt, it felt like a very direct kind of conversation. And he, he's very much like an old-time Paul. He, he's somebody right. who, who was, ca- he was caring about sort of how the game is played and like thinking about the game. He, he's, not, it's not, he's not ideological. He isn't. <laughs> not he, was a, he was a politician. Not a Jacobin? 
he's not a Jacobin. He's a what, who, what's the opposite of a Jacobin? Uh, the Drondet. What say, how do you spell that? Uh, Chamel, where are you pulling this from? I am sorry. <laughs> like, how is that in your brain? I'm sorry my voice is rising in shock. But seriously, I've never even heard that word before. What, how do you what? spell it? Um, it's J-G-I-R-O-N-D. Oh, oh yeah. They're like the, the, the French Gironde. establishment left. Yeah. <laughs> David, don't even try to pretend <laughs> that you had yeah. that in your head at the top of it. They, they, were, they, were, they were sort of like, we, we probably shouldn't execute so many people. Right. The Jacobins are the sans culotte too, right? They're the same. Well, the, the, the sans culotte. The, the, the sans culotte are the. the I am not of, playing this game. The um, the Paris sort of like street mob uh-huh. that they're the Tea Party. Yeah, that, the that various the factions party. tried to sort of co-opt okay. for their uh, their ends. Okay. And now, Jamel, are you going to sing from Les Misérables <laughs> to close us out? It's, it's, no, I just been reading about the French Revolution recently. Uh-huh. Jean Bonnet. The resignation of House Speaker Jean Bonnet. Thanks for listening to this GabFest Extra. We'll be back with a regular show next week. Thank you, Jamel Bowie and Emily Bazelon. And our producer today is Mike Fuolo. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.